So we are in week four of this series, the uh, All Things New series. And uh, week one, we talked about a new thing. The, uh, God wants to do a new thing in our life, in our heart. And when change happens in our life, and change does happen, whether you get married or you have a job change or you have a baby uh, that's come on and, or you have a sickness, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. Some things are unplanned and some changes are planned. Whether they're planned or unplanned, we all experience change in our life. And when change happens, there's, um, there's sort of this feeling that we can kind of navigate that change. It's like, okay, change is happening. We're just going to tough it out. We're going to walk through it. But underneath that change, there are transitions that naturally happen. And if we don't recognize the transitions that are happening, then sometimes the change that, um, that we experience will be rough waters. And so with that transition that change has three phases. One is letting go, letting go of what God wants to do. So if you have a job change, you got to let go of the other job, right? You, 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 can't, you can't go back to that other work and say, hey, I think I'm going to work on, on Mondays with you and, you know, the other days here. It's like, no, you got you to let go of that job unless you're working both jobs, okay? Or if you get married, you've got to let go of certain relationships, right? You can't say, well, I'm, I'm going to be married to you, but I'm, I'm still going to, you know, see other girls or see other guys, you know? You, you've got to let that go, that, that lifestyle, you've got to let it go. And then there's also this neutral zone phase that we go through with transition. And this neutral phase is in between of letting go and the new that God wants to do in your life. And this sort of phase is, it doesn't last really long, a long time, but this phase gets us a little bit confused as to where God is, what God is doing and, and what our life is going to look like as we let go and we look to the new. And then the last phase is obviously the new thing that God wants to do, the new beginning that he wants to do in your life. So week one, we talked about the new thing and the transitions and the changes. Week two, I talked about a new mercy, how God's mercy is new every morning. Why? Because of his great love for us. Then last week, week three, we talked about healing through the hurt. I shared how God can make things new from, uh, with healing from the hurt in our life. This healing encourages you to reveal your hurt. We've got to reveal that hurt. We've got, we got to understand, okay, this is real. Number two, we've got to release those who have hurt us. If there, if there needs to be change in your life, if there needs to be healing in your life, you've got to be able to release those people who have hurt you. That's very important. Number three, we've got to replace the old memories with God's truth. I know when we go um, through hurt times of, of, uh, of rejection or whatever that looks like, there could be some scars, there could be lots of hurt, there can be some things that obviously we, we've got to provide uh, forgiveness, but in that process, um, we've got to be able to replace those memories that are, that are still stuck in our head. Replace that with the word of God. Replace that through, with prayer. Replace that with the peace of God. And then last, we've got to refocus on the future. Not look to the past. Look forward for the future. You've got to take down the rearview mirror. You've got to take it down. So, healing through the hurt. Reveal your hurt. Release those who've hurt you. Replace your memories with God's word, his, through prayer, 
and refocus on the future, not the past. Well, we will close out this series over the next two weeks with a part one and a part two of today's message. So today's message has two parts. Part one is today. Next week is part two, which means you got to come back to see what happens, right, in part two. So um, it's about, this message is about the length of what God will do to make all things new in your life. God is very intentional and serious about making things new in your life. You may not receive that. You may think, okay, there's, there's so much junk going on in my life. There's things that I've done in my life that it's dead. It'll never be made new. I hope to prove you wrong today and next week because God wants to bring new life to your situation. God will give everything, even his own son, to make things new in your life. The adjective I want us to use to describe God these next two weeks is the word prodigal. Is the word prodigal. So what does the word prodigal mean? The word prodigal is defined as recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. Recklessly extravagant, having spent everything. Don't you think that describes God, having spent everything? I mean, if I, if, if I give you everything I have, I give you my house, my car, you know, everything that's, the little things that's in my bank account, you know, if I give you those things and then I need to give you more, well, the more spent everything is, okay, I'm going to give you my family. But God gave his family. God gave his only son. He gave everything, recklessly extravagant, giving everything. And so prodigal, which that's what prodigal means, it actually describes God very well. The word prodigal is best remembered by the parable by Jesus about the prodigal son. I used to think prodigal used to be, it used to be someone who is a, you know, a, a sinner. Well, prodigal means, you know, the son that sins, you know, or prodigal uh, means that the son that runs away. No, that's not what prodigal means. We learned this from the parable that sometimes it takes a reckless love to rescue a reckless heart. So we will be in Luke chapter 15 for the next two weeks. Next two weeks, Luke chapter 15. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn to there. If you have your digital copy on your phone or your tablet, you can go there, Luke chapter 15, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then uh, John finishes out the Gospels. But um, it'll also be on the screen. For those who are watching online, it'll be on your tablet, phone, or screen as well. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, and our focus will be the parable of the prodigal son. Many biblical scholars call it the parable of the lost son, because that's what he is. He's, he's a lost son, especially because it follows two other parables in Luke chapter 15. It follows the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. But we will see over the next two weeks that this should be called, actually be called, the parable of the two lost sons. The parable of the two lost sons. We will look at the son who ran away first and then the son who stayed home next week. 
Before we dive into the story, let's look at what, uh, who uh, was the audience listening to this story. To properly interpret scripture, we need to understand who the scripture is to. Now, ultimately, God's word is, is written and has, been, uh, has, has remained throughout these thousands of years for us to grow in our faith, to us understand God. But at the time that it was written, it was written and spoken in a way that was, that was to a particular audience. And so we've got to understand who the audience is in order to properly interpret Scripture. So as we look at Luke chapter 15, let's, uh, let's focus on just verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we have two groups of people in the audience. We have tax collectors, sinners. Now just so you know this, you know, tax collectors were, were people who, they charged tax, they worked um, in partnership with the Roman government, but they could charge whatever they want and they keep the rest. I mean, so they were greedy people, okay? And there were even Jewish tax collectors who worked for Roman government. In fact, Matthew, who was one of the disciples who wrote the book of Matthew, was a Jew and he was a tax collector. And so people didn't really like Matthew, at all. Because he, he was like, you know, working for the, the enemy, working for the bad guys. And so, but you have tax collectors and sinners who were, who were in the audience, okay? And then you also have Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were the very sort of religious, highbrow people, okay? They just kind of knew everything. And they followed the law, to the nth degree, and in even their man-made portions of the law. So you basically have some sinners and some saints in that area and in the audience. So um, let's continue in this story. We're going to focus on 11 through 24 as we focus on the parable of the two lost sons. We're going to focus on the first lost son today. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So just imagine what that could be, right? Imagine today what wild living could be. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, 
Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring uh, the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. We're going to read the rest of that parable next week as we focus on the eldest son. Today we focus on the youngest son. The two sons were very different. And they both represent two ways in which people try to find happiness and fulfillment. The, um, the two methods we see this week and next week are self-discovery in order to find happiness and fulfillment and then moral conformity, conforming to a certain set of morals. Most everyone uses these two methods to find personal significance and worth. The message in Jesus' parable is that both of these approaches are wrong. And his parable illustrates the radical alternative to these approaches. Today, we will look at how people use self-discovery to find happiness and fulfillment as displayed by the younger brother. So what does this person look like? What, the person that chooses self-discovery basically says this. Okay, so pay attention. Here's what this person says. I'm the only one who can decide what is right or wrong for me. I'm going to live as I want to live and find my true self and happiness that way. So that is a person who finds happiness and fulfillment through self Discovery that describes the youngest brother, the youngest brother. So, how can you tell if you are displaying attributes of the younger brother, someone who needs God to bring new life into you? Well, I have four of these. Number one, selfish requests. Selfish requests. In Jewish society, there were laws regarding how inheritances were typically to be divided. If a father had several sons, then um, the oldest son uh, would get a double portion and all the other younger sons would get just a single portion of the inheritance. But if there were two sons, like in this story, one son would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the youngest son would get one-third of the inheritance. In this parable, the younger son demands a share of the property that falls to me. That means he is asking for one-third of the father's possessions that he would ordinarily get when his father dies. So think about it. He's asking his father to give one-third of everything that he has right now, and he is living before his father dies. Now, how many fathers would do that today? If one of my sons comes come to me and says, Dad, I want... There's not going to be much left, but, you know... It, but But... But if they come to me and say, you know, Dad, I, I want whatever portion I'm supposed to give you. It's like, well, that's probably about $500, son. So, you know, here you go. Have fun. You know, let me know how life treats you. You know, but that, that would be ludicrous because it's like saying, you know, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want, your, I want what's coming to me more than I want a relationship with you. Selfish requests. Selfish 
request. This is truly astonishing request, and it would have been more astonishing in the ancient world. So have you found yourself, maybe not asking this sort of request, but have you found yourself asking for things that were selfish? Has selfish requests invaded your marriage or maybe another relationship in your life? How about between a parent and a child? Have we been selfish about requests or have we been demanding about certain requests? If you have done that, then you could be on the road to a younger brother mentality. Number two, move far away from home. After he gets a third of his father's estate, he takes everything he has and goes into a far country, and there he squanders his property, his his money, on loose living. In context, this means that he abandoned the Holy Land to go voluntarily into exile to a pagan country, a pagan nation, where he could live loosely without being censored by his fellow Jewish people. He wanted to get out of God's land so he could live in sin and fund his sinful lifestyle by what he took from his father. Another indicator that you could be trying to find happiness and fulfillment as a younger a brother has, is that you have moved far away from, quote, home. And this home represents the core values in various areas of your life. So if you are married, you know what home looks like. You know what home looks like. You and your spouse, it's just you and your spouse. No other people that you share in any kind of emotional um, in a bond with, or God forbid, physical bond with. There's no flirting. It's, it's you and your spouse. That is home. That is home. Students, home is when the boundaries of your parents. And we say, well, when I'm at home, I do things I, I obey, but when I'm away, not so much. Hey, home Quote, unquote, home is even when you're away from your physical home, but you're still obeying because of out of respect of your parents and love for your parents, you are still obeying your parents with that. And so moving away from home, whatever home looks like in your life, and, and there's a different home in, in various areas of your life. In business, there's a home. Okay, at work there's a home. You do your job. You show up. You show up on time. You don't steal from your company. You don't change numbers and lie and 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 have it benefit you. So we could be like the younger brother and have selfish requests or move far from home. Another one is experience humil- humiliation. Eventually, the resources that this younger uh, brother had were exhausted. He had, uh, if he had not spent what he had on loose living, as we will see later, even on prostitution, he would have had his money needed to weather the hard time that came, the famine that came to that country. Thus, he was reduced to a state of hunger and had to su- subject himself to feeding pigs. He had 
humiliation. Now, Jews weren't allowed to have anything to do with, with pork. And gosh, man, pork. I love pork. Right? Bacon. You know, I just, I wouldn't have survived right back then, right? You know, bacon and, and pulled pork, barbecue pork. You know, uh, Jews were, at that time, uh, they were not allowed to, um, to eat pork. And so, anything that had to do with pigs, pork, they, they weren't allowed to even be around it. Well, he was now a, a Hebrew, a Jew, living in a foreign country, in a pagan land, taking care of pigs and even uh, scooping up the slop and longing to even eat the slop that the pigs w- were eating. Imagine, you get to that point. I mean, that's worse than, than dumpster diving, all right? Now, if you dumpster dive for, you know, things in your house. I mean, that's good. You do you. But if you're dumping diving for food, please let me know, and we could try to help you with that. But it's even worse than dumpster diving for food. It's, it's actually wanting to eat the leftover junk food that was from the table and that was for the pigs and longing to eat that. I mean, he was humiliated so a third indication that you could be acting like a younger brother is that you experience humiliation. Have you done something wrong and people found out about it and you're humiliated by it? Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe you told a lie and the truth came out. Or you hurt somebody or you did some, some wrong, something wrong or or maybe you did something that lost the trust in someone, but yet you had to you know, keep on living and you had to face them and face people. And so you had a life of humiliation. And so you go into hiding. And the last place you want to show up is church <laughs> because of humiliation. We get that. We understand. We get that. And just know this, that we all can be like the younger brother. We can all have life of humiliation. But then last, there's a turning point. There's a turning point. He, he recalled how his righteous father treated even the hired servants better than he plans he, he has a speech. Say, uh, Father, if I, I've sinned against heaven and you, I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Just over and over in his mind. He, he says, I'll do this. So he left and he started walking home and he rehearsed this speech, hoping that his father would at least bring him on as a hired servant. And a hired servant is not even, that's even lower than a servant who actually lives on the property. A hired servant is someone who actually lived in the nearby village and they would show up every day or whenever they were supposed to work at the house. So that, that was even him not even living at home. And so he wanted to ask the father that. So there was a turning point Okay, I've had enough humiliation. I've had enough humiliation in my life. I've messed up, and I I need to start walking towards the Father. It could be you today, whether watching online or or here today, where you could be at a turning point in your life when you say, all right, I've had enough. I've had enough humiliation. 
I'm, I'm, I'm ready to turn back to God. I'm ready to, to walk towards the Father, ready to walk towards the Father. Now, what did the Father do? Let me go over a few things that the Father did. Actions of the Father. So we see the actions of the younger brother, but we can also observe the actions of the loving Father. So what did the Father do with the younger son, with the younger brother? What did he do? He loved him while he was leaving. He loved him while he was leaving. That's a country song right there. Right? He, he loved him while he was leaving. He responded in love. He was generous and respectful. There was not a fight. The father knew he couldn't stop his son from making the choice to leave. If you ever decide to move away from the home of God, he will love you while you leave. When your conversations with God become fewer by the weeks, when you move out of fellowship with other believers, when you disregard the moral life you should be living, God is right there still loving you while you're leaving home. He's not going to stop you because it's your free will. He will not fight with you. He will not fight with you. So, what did the Father do? He loves while we leave. Second thing the Father did, and obviously the Heavenly Father does, because this parable is all about, it's all about two groups of people. It's about two groups of people, and those people were in the audience. Today we're talking about the we're talking about the tax collectors and sinners. They represent the younger son. Next week, it's about the Pharisees. And next week is going to be a boom. Next week, I'm telling you right now, I was convicted, preparing. Because the story, the main character in this story, it's not the younger brother. It's not the father. It's the older brother. And we'll see why next week. But as we see what is going on in this situation. We know that the Father also, not only does he loves us while we, while we leave, he watches and waits for you. He watches and waits for you. The Father is watching and waiting for the return of his son. I imagine the Father is taking care of some of his chores around the ranch. And he's on the side of the ranch where he can kind of see far off where the, the son left. Maybe he walked down the pathway going to the main road in front of his property. And he's working on that side of the ranch, that side of the house where he's just, he's just in constant view of that. Maybe he's working in the barn, but he's, he's looking at the barn, maybe high up, and, and he's, he's seeing where his son could be coming from. He's watching. I don't think he's just sitting on the front porch every day. He's continually to do things. So anytime someone becomes towards the house, I imagine the father squints and does this and just says, all right, could, could that be him? And his son, he, but he realizes his son will not be riding on a horse or camel or donkey. donkey. He will not be coming with a caravan of people. His son returns home. It's because he spent everything he had, and he made some bad choices. If his son's coming home, 
It's because he spent all of his money, made some bad choices. He's going to be walking by himself. And so that's why his father recognized his son from a long way off. It's not the neighbors down the street coming in a caravan. Okay? It's not people in the next town. Okay? It's someone walking by themselves heading towards the house. The father had to wait and watch from home. And it's really interesting. If he wanted to find his son, which he could have, he could have left home and went to go find his son. But you and I both know, if he would have left and go find the son and try to talk his son, his son would have, his son would have refused to come home. You know that. There would be pride. The father had so much wisdom to wait at home, not to go to him and say, hey, you're making a fool of yourself. Stop paying money for prostitution. Stop squandering your wealth. Come back home. The son would not have done that because it was the father's idea. We got kids living in our own house that if we were to say that, they'd be like, no, I don't think so. That's your idea. It needs to be my idea. So we sit back and we wait and we pray and we pray and we pray. And God has answered our prayers and continues to answer our prayers. But just know this, the Heavenly Father, he's waiting for you at home because he knows you got to get to the point to where you realize where you are, where you've ended up, and experience some humiliation. But then comes the great part. The Father runs towards you. The Father runs towards you. While he is still at a distance, the Father sees him, has compassion on him, runs to him, hugs him, and kisses him. This is far from the humiliating reunion that the son might have anticipated. Patriarchs, fathers back then, who, had, who, was, who were very wealthy, had lots of land, they, they, didn't, they didn't run. They did not run. The father did not stay in the field on the front porch to wait for the son to come begging for forgiveness either. The father saw all that he wanted to see. He saw his son in the distance by himself, not riding a donkey or a camel, and he realized, okay, there's something wrong. I'm not going to wait for him to come back here and fall on his knees and beg for forgiveness and me hold my arms like this and say, I told you so. That's not what the father did. He ran. He ran to his son. Because he knew this. His son already experienced enough humiliation. Why give him more humiliation? Father just wanted to show love. He ran to him. That's what the father does for us. When we move away from home, and we've made bad choices. We all have. And we have some humiliation in our life. The Heavenly Father isn't here going, all right, come. Fall at your feet. Fall at my feet and beg for forgiveness. I'm going to humiliate you even more. That's not what the Father does. Now, there's, there's going to be some repentance Absolutely. And the son was preparing for that. In fact, he, he said it. 
He, he rehearsed it. And so when we come back to the God the Father, yeah, there needs to be a, a heart of humility. Yes. But God runs after you. Nowhere in the Bible do we see God running. Except right here. And these are the words of Jesus. He's talking about God the Father. So he runs towards you. What does the Father do? What is the actions of the Father? He loves you while you're leaving. He watches and waits for you. He runs towards you. And finally, he restores you. The Father accepted, forgave, embraced, and restored the repentant son. He gave him the best robe. In fact, biblical scholars believe the best robe was his own robe. He gave his own robe, shoes for his feet, a ring, a fatted calf, and a welcome home fiesta. It was a party of all parties. The father, son, the, uh, the father saw the son's repentant spirit, not with, not with groveling, nor even in his speech, but rather in his direction. The son was headed toward home. God the Father will always restore someone who makes their way back home with a heart of humility. God will not scorn you. Listen to me. God will not scorn you, but he will restore you. God will not scorn you as you head home, but he will restore you. And that's what he wants to do. He is recklessly extravagant and will give everything to have you back home with him. He will give everything, and he has given everything. He gave his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. So how extravagantly, how recklessly is God the Father in coming to us and bringing us back home? We see that in the first of these parables. And I'm going to close with this. It's a parable of the lost sheep. Then Jesus, in verse 3, in chapter 15 of Luke, then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I told you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over that one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Can I tell you something? God the Father longs, he longs to restore you. He's waiting on you. He's ready to run after you. He wants to show you how much he loves you. And it, it is crazy love. It is a love that you can't explain, but you can experience. Know this. We have all been like the younger brother. We've all been like the younger brother. We've all have, have made selfish requests of others, of God, and we have squandered that, what he's given to us. We have misused it in reckless ways. But God, being the heart that he is, he's ready to leave the 99 and come to you, and he's waiting on you, and he's ready to restore you. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
As we move into a time of, of worship, I'm going to ask the, uh, the band is going to come, and they're going to um, sing another song. But this song is um, it, it's a song of worship, but it's also we're going to use this as a time where we all can have um, a time here at the altar down front, or you can have an altar where you are if you're watching live. And if you're here today or watching live or watching later, just know this. God the Father is ready to receive you. He's waiting on you. Enough of the humiliation. Enough of that. It's time to make your way back home. God the Father is not there standing with folded arms, ready to scorn you. He's ready to restore you. And all that takes is a heart of humility. Just saying, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please be near me. And so whether you have a life of that or, or maybe there's an area in your life where you feel like, you know, I've, I've, been a, I've been a younger brother in this area of my life, in my marriage, in certain relationships, at work, or with certain people, and, and I just, I need to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe for the first time, you need to come to the Father and say, Father, I, re- I receive your love for me. I need Jesus in my life. I need direction in my life. Please forgive me. If that is you, you could just simply say a prayer. Father, please forgive me. Please come into my life. Be Lord of my life. I surrender my heart to you.